Y'all ready to rock? Awesome. I'm Chris White, writer and director of the coming-of-age music movie, Electric Jesus, a story set in a world that might seem like a foreign planet to some people. Electric Jesus, the music behind the movie, is your VIP backstage pass into this crazy world. And in the immortal words of Skip Wick, our Christian rock huckster with feet of clay and a bad toupee, the Rock and Roll Road Show. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Episode 1, Music, Memory, and Mixtapes. So Chris, as we get this thing started right here, Episode 1, tell us who our guest is today in the Electric Jesus interview suite. I have an old friend, Christy Wooten. She's a music journalist, author, and activist from Atlanta, Georgia, and she has a lot to say about the nostalgic power of music. Okay, Christy, I want to know from you, I want you to describe the perfect, the perfect mixtape. Is it a 60-minute or a 90-minute cassette? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for having me. And um, the mixtape concept, of course, has had several iterations. As as we were growing up, you would record them usually by taping songs off the radio. You may not have even owned the mm -hmm. record. So you had to wait for that song to come on the radio and be there ready with your cassette to record it. And then of course you spliced all those together to make a tape of everything that you loved. So you didn't have to sit through the junk you didn't want to hear on the radio. So that was kind of the origin of that. But in terms of the perfect mixtape, I would definitely say it would be a 90 minute cassette. 45 each side. 45 each side. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. 30 minutes is never enough to make a complete statement. <laughs> you, <laughs> well, what's the statement? You call it a statement. What is a mixtape statement? It's like any metaphor for life. I mean, a tape has two sides, right? Why mm. would you want, why would you not want to use that to make a statement on each side? So usually I would, if, if I was making a tape, um, you know, and, and they can go together, but they can be chronological. They could be one side could be a certain mood and the other could be something else. Or they could be very pointed, if, especially if you make a tape for a friend, family member or lover, or whoever you're making a tape for. You can relay a lot of messages in 45 minutes on each side. So, well, yeah. So who it's for is important. You could be making it for yourself or your crush or your parent, uh, a friend, that matters. Uh, I'd even forgotten about making mixtapes for myself, you know, just the music that I would want to listen to. I think that's where today's playlist, which I do consider to be, you know, grandchildren of the mixtape. I think that we usually always start playlists for ourselves. It's, mm -hmm. It feels like a very self-propelled activity mm -hmm. to drop and drag the songs. Um, and I think it's a little harder to keep the other person always in mind when you're doing that because you're so mm -hmm. caught up and being able to stop and start and listen and mix and mm -hmm. make sure the intro and everything, you didn't have that luxury when you were recording things on a cassette, That's right. you know? That's so right. I, I think that, that playlist is much more of a self, you know, making it for yourself concept. 
I was going to say, I remember making um, mixtapes for a, a, a girl and it didn't work out. Like it didn't land. She didn't, she didn't respond the way I thought she was going to respond, but man, it was a great tape. And she gave me the tape back in the hallway at school and said, yeah, I don't understand this at all. And she handed it back. And I thought, what? Like I put my heart that this is me on plastic like this. And you're just handing it back to me. And I, I had it. And then another girl came along and I thought, well, maybe I should give this tape to her. But it felt wrong. Like I needed to go through the process again and make a different mix because it felt wrong for me to actually reuse that tape for a different girl. And, and I remember thinking at the age of whatever that was, that this is be like 15, 16 years old. What is wrong with me? <laughs> like even at that age, like that I had actually gone through and been rejected and I still couldn't reuse that tape. What do you suppose is the is the psychology of that? I wonder. Well, I know what the psychology is, is because you're like the biggest music nerd I've ever met. And and you were also <laughs> trying to be you were trying to honor your your relationship with the one who rejected you. And uh, so you're, it was loyalty. It was loyalty. <laughs> Christy, do you remember when you would be making a tape or eventually it became mixed CDs or something? CDs weren't like tapes. You had to if you were lining up tracks on a mixtape, you would have to sit there and listen to the songs. Like it was an analog world. And so you would listen to the songs and anticipate what I'm going to put on here next. It was it was kind of a very live in the room kind of experience of listening to music, wasn't it? It was. And I would liken it to any other sort of homemade gift you might have made mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. You know, Mother's Day or for grandma or whatever. I mean, you were going to spend your requisite hour painting, gluing, mm -hmm. whatever it is you're going to make. And, and tapes were no different back then. I feel like that that was... It required time. It required thought. And, and decoration, and the sleeve, you would, you would, I mean, decoration. would you, would you write all the names of songs or would you make it a mystery? Like, this is just a mixtape and I put cool stuff on it. Or was it important to you as it's this artist and this song and you need to know this person listening to this? Yeah, I'm a big nerd. So I, they needed to know the artist and the song and they almost always needed to know the exact number of minutes and seconds the song was because that that also said what it was i mean you could tell if something's three and a half minutes you know it's from the long line of you know radio friendly pop music if it's if it's six minutes 24 seconds it's either jazz or pink floyd or some other realm that you're about to enter so yeah. those were important things to know ahead of time mm -hmm. as you you know popped that thing into the car tape absolutely deck. Well, let me ask you this. Why is pop music or rock music, uh, the music of our youth, why do you think it's, why is it so powerful? Why does it stay with us? And, and, and maybe is it extra powerful to Gen Xers, our generation? I would say yes, and, and here's why. I think it's the perfect nexus of technology. So we had radio, we had television, we had MTV, which is a whole other realm to, you know, anything that humans had experienced before with music. And of course, all of that was a big marketing ploy for the record mm -hmm. companies. So it was sort of dressed up in all the Mad Men uh, language and visuals and things like that to sell it to us. But I think that, you know, I really feel like we kind of were the 20th century music generation. I mean, looking, especially now after the pandemic, looking back, I don't, 
you think about gener each generation, maybe the silent generation, our great grandparents or grandparents, and then the boomers on down, how each generation has used music um, as a technology. And now we actually do use it. We are no longer listeners, we're users. So, you know, I think Gen X was caught right in the middle of all those generations trying to figure out what music meant to them. And so I think that that it was just our thing. I mean, we did make it visual. We did make it personal. We did make mixtapes. And, you know, I, I don't know if you've read Rob Sheffield's book, Life is a Mixtape, but that kind of sums up, you know, what music meant to us, you know, that we assign memories to songs mm. and we live our lives by those songs. I mean, you can be anywhere and hear a song and know exactly where you were either the first time you heard it or the time it mattered most like the time you heard it on the way back from a swim meet and you know you're eating a popsicle and your mom's telling you to not let it drip on the back seat of the car so you know like you right. you can remember songs based on where you were and i think that not every generation had that perfect mix of visuals and location and things you know that music was with us every everywhere we went in stores cars everywhere yeah, it was portable and, and transportable the the walkman was just a huge thing that we could just walk around with it in our ears the artists who are the, what were the songs that animate your memory that bring you back to childhood and adolescence and young adulthood who what, give us some highlights i know there's hundreds but for me it was my first memories of listening to wfbc fm obviously in greenville but with stevie wonder and by then paul mccartney's solo stuff on the radio so the beatles were still on the radio too even they had broke even though they had broken up but i mean really just sort of that solo beatles stuff that was all over fm in the very early 70s and, and stevie wonder and the the last sort of end of the 60s motown all those big hits were still being played on the radio and of course marvin Gaye's what's going on album came out when i was an infant but that i think that was like a gigantic album that loomed large throughout my whole childhood. Um, and even though my parents weren't playing those records, just being able to hear that on the radio and also being able to hear radio at a time when there weren't these conglomerated stations, there was the local soul station and there was the local pop station and there was the local whatever. There was room for everybody and they were still independently owned and independently minded in terms of making up their minds of what they were going to play. So I think I was greatly influenced by that because, you know, people grew up around in different places in America where they didn't have like a locally owned station that played primarily black artists aimed at, you know, roller skating crowd, mm -hmm. you know, and white kids in a suburban neighborhood listening to, you know, Prince's first album and all this years before it sort of became mainstream stuff. And as you became a teenager, Christy, does how does music start and an artist and I guess the presentation of the artist and the music start helping you create your own identity uh, and, and your own idea of yourself in the world? Definitely music was connected to a worldview, especially for people like us who grew up with the man on the moon. You know, we saw that as, you know, 
everybody around the world, you know, being the same, which of course we're not. We didn't realize at the time we had a lot more opportunity in America than other folks did. But with regard to music, I think when the second British invasion arrived in the late 70s, early 80s with all the new wave artists, I think that's when we started to see artists speaking out a little more about, you know, not only how they made the songs and but what it meant and what the purpose of the song was. So we had gotten beyond all the 50s and 60s, the ditties and the, you know, the Paul Ankas and those that our parents grew up with and the love songs and the crooning. Nothing wrong with love songs, but, you know, songs, if you do a word cloud of lyrics from the 1950s, it's baby and car and honey and all these kind of things. And you get to the 80s and by the middle of the 80s, the word clouds are word like, one together world i mean it's it's so obvious when you look at, and of course you arrive at things like we are the world at a certain point with that but it, you know the decades were caught up in in different things and i think the visual presentation was a lot of that you know with music video not just the the fashions and that but how they presented themselves in context of the world we were all seeing i mean so many artists were writing songs about their fear of nuclear war. And, and that was part of the way that they spoke to us about what was going on in the world and, and shaped our worldviews. And you were either, you know, impressed by that, or you went on to listen to something else. And that's one of the things that I think happened like in the eighties is this kind of split off of country music being continuing to try to be mostly just an American mm. concept. And that, how that limit how that limited the genre and now you're seeing of course a backlash against that in a positive way with all these amazing alt country artists and americana artists who are you know um putting out really thoughtful timely things about the the way of the world have any memory of the first time you walked into a record store or even if it was like Kmart and you bought you purpose to buy like a a, a 45 an LP or even a cassette what what were you buying the first 45 that I ever got was from Kmart mm-hmm. I think everything came from Kmart in my world until I was about 10 <laughs> until record bar until record bar opened at McAllister Square but um no, definitely Kmart and the cool thing about Kmart believe it or not was they would give white label singles i guess they would get them in shipments from the record companies to give out for give out free so i mean this wasn't my first one i did i my first single was ringo star's photograph that my cousin cousin bought me at kmart when i was about Mm -hmm. four years old but the first one i remember getting really excited about is in the checkout line at kmart they had a stack of white label singles for earth wind and fire september and so they were handing them out and I still have that white label. And I, I remember I, we used to carry our 45s in a little box to take to the skating rink as if the guy <laughs> at the skating rink didn't have a copy of September. You know what I mean? But when they played your copy where you had written your name on the label, that was what was special. It didn't matter if you'd heard it a million times but when they played your copy. So that's where we get into this idea too of music ownership and how much more that sort of strengthened the relationship of our generation to music because, you know, it was babysitting money or allowance or whatever. It, it meant something and meant enough to us that we wanted to sacrifice some of that to have it in our possession. 
I remember that uh, it was precious. The music cost something, and th- that led to us sharing, and that fed into the communal aspect that the the records were so expensive that I would get this one, this guy would get this one, this girl would get this one, and then we would share. My brother and I, who were at each other's throats, we hardly got along at all. This was the phase where, you know, we were 18 months apart and we just wanted to kill each other most of the time. But we wanted Queen's Greatest Hits album so badly that we created a, a, a contract between us. And I owned side A and he owned side B. And we signed a contract that said, you can listen to side B and I can listen to side A. Like, uh, we would... We would share it as long as we agreed to clean it between, you know, all this stuff. And we went to Kmart and bought that album together and shared the other side with the other person. And and that was like a moment of detente. And I had records I would bring to parties and I was the DJ and people would bring their records. And it really was something that forced some community and some sharing. And now with it being perceived as being free, I think we're losing a little bit of that preciousness um, and the excitement. Although, you know, my son came in the house so excited last night that 21 Pilots had dropped their new single that he could not wait. He had to just tell us and play the song, you know, over and over and over and really think about what the lyrics mean. Like, So I'm glad to see that there are, and he was with some friends when he found out about it and they listened to it together. So it can happen, but I don't know that it happens as much. The music is just flying around so fast and so it's, the access is so easy. For us, I think it was a little bit more prescient. You know, just going to this idea of, of music is the time machine. Uh, it certainly is for me. It certainly animates the idea of the movie. Electric Jesus is a memory movie that's set to, to music in a lot of ways. As we come to the present, I just, how does pop music, rock music, new and old, how does that work in your daily life now? You're a grown up. You have a pretty much grown kid and you have uh, a job and a and a marriage and well like when do you listen well this is a that's a very loaded question but i'll try to get to as much of it as i can <laughs> the the idea though that you touched upon the fact that we are adults i mean i think that's like saying oh adults no don't need to drink water to stay hydrated i mean i mean music is a human thing we need it i mean you know it's 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 a human phenomenon. I mean, the fact that music strikes certain emotions or brings those memories back. I mean, it's a, it's a thing that you just, you should 
never live without. I mean, even people with hearing impairment or things like that find ways to enjoy rhythms and to understand music through other ways. But, you know, there's that element. Um, as far as music being a time machine, I think that we do a disservice to music to mm. suspend it in time. I think there are certain moments that are suspended in time, whether that's a high school dance or a date or a concert experience, something where we can we can capture those as moments in time and, and keep them in a the little capsule. But music itself transcends that. And that's one of the things I love about Electric Jesus is that you're watching this story, which feels retro, which feels like a, a almost flashback to a certain time, but you, the music is right there with you in the present moment. And that is what makes you not dismiss is, oh, this feels mm. like too much like the eighties, or this feels like this. You are, you're, you're viewing it through a retro lens, but at the same time, you're not putting it into a capsule so that it belongs only to one decade. And I think that's one of the things that music does, not only for film, but for us in our lives. I think a song that was once relevant could be relevant again. What, I mean, I'm not going to play Disco Duck today and like, you know, <laughs> think that that's important. Excuse me, Rick D. Sorry about that. But, you know, there there are some like sort of confectionery pop songs that are always going to be lost in time. But for the most part, I think music is as important an element of your life that can grow with you as as any other aspect that's, of your life. Yeah, that's that's really beautiful and and um the you know one of the ideas that was going on and as we were thinking about electric jesus was i think nostalgia is is a dangerous thing or it can be a maybe that's too strong nostalgia to me feels unearned in a lot of ways and nostalgia feels trite to me and i love what you're saying about how and maybe that's why it does feel trite because nostalgia does put something in a in a time capsule uh for us to maybe almost fetishize to go to it and you know keep it there and then come back to, to reality, whereas, you know, September by Earth, Wind & Fire always sounds like a brand new song every time I hear it. And, and if you actually listen to it in September of the year, it feels like a discovery <laughs> every year. It's like, <laughs> oh yeah, we can, we can listen to September today. <laughs> One of the things about this that strikes me is that we're talking about the fact that music forms our memories, informs our memories, shapes our memories. But a lot of a lot of times, memories are lies. You know, they're they're we don't remember things exactly accurately. What's what's interesting to me is when I go back and I have these nostalgic moments with some of the music, I'm also remembering that part of why a lot of us were doing this punk metal rock alternative music with kind of a faith angle to it was that we were we were reacting against some of the dishonesty of mtv uh when we were saying you know what actually when you treat girls that way that's not good i'm interested in this idea of um memory not always being honest or accurate and music not always being honest or accurate but that somehow in the in the nexus of that we can we can still find some value in how we learn about our own growth and how we reflect on where we've come and when we go back there 
some of this stuff, I think we, we really run a risk when we romanticize it um, too much. There's some learning to do when we go back into those memories, I think. I totally, totally agree, especially being a woman who's spent 30 plus years writing about rock and roll and even thinking back to the 70s and 80s and 90s, even writing about uh, predominantly male rock bands. Of course, there's there's fewer bands today than there were back then. Um, but, uh, you know, and not all of them were writing terribly misogynist lyrics or, you know, doing things like that. But that certainly existed. And where I was trying to fit in as a girl and then a teenager and then an adult writing about this music, you do get caught up in this, oh, a, a song can sweep you away. Just like, I, I, again, I bring up the madman and the advertising um, you know, comparison is that you are being sold. A song is selling you something, whether that's a lie that you tell yourself uh, to be you know, not honest with yourself about what the situation is, or whether it's a dream world that you aspire to that you may never get to in your real life. And that's the appeal of the music. But as far as our memories, I do think that memories, I don't know that I would call memories dishonest per se, but I would say that it's kind of, you know, the same way as when you first saw the tallest building in your town, or maybe the first time you saw the Eiffel Tower or something, and you think, man, that is so much shorter mm -hmm. than I ever thought it would, would be in real life. Or same thing when you meet a certain rock star who's not very tall or other people. Uh, you're like, that's not the way I imagined it to be. And I think that's what I, I think that's how we trick ourselves. And part of that is uh, transitioning from childhood to adult. So our memories are ensconced in childhood. And when, you know, those were our first impressions. We didn't know, of course, that Joe Rocker over here was being horrible to women or writing terrible lyrics or whatever. You didn't know as a child everything that was going on. So as we peel, the, I mean, this is happening all across society too, as we peel back the layers of our sins of the past, and, and those include music and musicians. It's it's hard, you know, I think I've come up against this primarily with, with artists such as like Michael Jackson. I've had a hard time reconciling my love for the exuberance of those songs, especially um, on Off the Wall, and then, you know, some of the tracks on Thriller as well. And I, I came to the conclusion that I am really just a big fan of Quincy Jones' arrangements. And every player who played in the orchestra in the rhythm section of those actually recorded, orchestrated albums, that's, that's who is calling my spirit, you know, when I hear those songs. And I think it's hard for us now as we, in terms of reviewing things that need to be reviewed, either artists whose estate may not deserve our money right now after, after they've been accused of something or whatever. I think we have to just look at the music and how it was made and, and what was the intent there. So it's, it requires a lot of thought to stay on the right side of all of it. Um, and I don't know that there's always a right side of all of it. We just have to do the best we can. Chrissy, did you have any interaction with what we would call CCM or Christian music when you were a teenager or growing up at all? I, I, no, not really, because 
you weren't evangelical. Your family was like Episcopal or something, right? Or Yeah, and so that was not really on my radar. Now, of course, with Greenville's, and I know you and I are almost exactly the same age. I might be a year older than you, Chris, but you had to go to a specific type of church to be exposed to that back then. It wasn't as, you know, there wasn't the big mainstream uh, Christian radio stations that there are now reaching big white audiences, or at least not in Greenville. I don't remember that because you had like sort of the WGGS and the old timey gospel barbershop quartets. Those were still on TV. That was the stuff that was happening kind of in that Bob Jones um, choir. You know, Bob Jones would have every Sunday the choir out by the, you know, they would film them and stuff like that. So that was, I was much more exposed to all of that. And of course, as a choir singer myself in high school and of course at Furman, I was more into the historical Christian text and music that, that choirs were doing and none of real, I mean, I did, you know, in order to play for me as Episcopalian to play basketball at the Baptist church, I went to Episcopal church on Sunday morning, but went to Baptist church Wednesday and, and Sunday night. and. I was in the Baptist church choir on Wednesday night because it was just like adjacent to to basketball. So that was it. I don't remember hearing. I, of course, I knew who Amy Grant was after a certain point. But I, I did know about a couple of the metal bands only because when I worked at Record Bar, they were popular sellers. I mean, people would come in and buy Striper and stuff like that, um, for sure. I grew up Episcopalian as well. And what's interesting is that I was not familiar with the Baptist uh, evangelical subculture, but I remember reading an interview with T-Bone Burnett, and he's Episcopalian. And I was like, well, that's interesting. And I found the whole world of artists who were Christians, but were in the mainstream, like The Call and U2. And, uh, and I started to really actively look for that. And so there, when I started True Tombs, I was you know 16 years old. I did it as an Episcopalian kid who was raised with a kind of a different way of kind of looking for God everywhere and not looking to create an alternate reality. It was more like God is, the truth is kind of out there and God had created all good things. And then it was only after True Tunes got successful that I found the the alternate world of evangelicalism and the people that got really upset when they wanted their own separate world. And when you brought things over, Bruce Coburn from Canada was one of our favorites, Midnight Oil from Australia. There were so many artists that were in the quote unquote real world that were talking about this stuff. And Springsteen was loaded with biblical stuff and Dylan was loaded. So to me, that was all part of it. But, you know, for, for those of us who grew up in that kind of tradition, it was, it was unfortunate that we weren't more, there weren't more people in the Episcopalian or the Lutheran or the Presbyterian world that were teaching the young people about how this, so that there wasn't more of an intentionality, because I think it, that conversation could have really helped the faith oriented music world have a richer fabric instead of it just being like a, a bubble that existed over on one side. It was a missed opportunity. I really feel like I love what you just said about all those artists. I still today find it will shock me. I will be listening to something. And then I've connected with so many musicians over the years through interviewing them. And now we're like all on Instagram together. So I'll be like, you know, scrolling down and somebody who's made a random hit 20 years ago is like liking my photo. And I'm thinking, and I'm seeing their posts and I'm thinking, gosh, this person is like a super Christian acting person. Like they've got all the, the iconography and the lingo and the this and that. And like, how did I not know this? And then you go back and you look at their lyrics and you're like, holy cow. 
I think all those things will eventually find each other. I think that's the way the world works. And I think that nothing should have a box around it. For sure. Well, thank you for being with us. I'm glad you got to meet my friend, John. John, I'm glad you got to meet my friend, Christy. I can't believe we haven't met before now. We've got so many friends in common. It's crazy. I know. I'm so excited to be connected with you. And thank you for this. It's so therapeutic to be able to to talk about film and about music. And those are things that we need right now more than ever, in my opinion. So thank you for the opportunity. It would be so great if you would make us a Spotify playlist, a mixtape, as it were. And, sure. and I would just say, um, because our movie is a coming-of-age story, um, I would love to hear a soundtrack for your own coming-of-age story, for Christie's. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. And um, and we'll share it in the show notes because I'm sure everybody would want to hear it. I certainly would want to hear it. I know you have great taste, so it'll be it'll be a great uh, collection. John, don't I have the coolest friends? I mean, Christy Wooten. <laughs> yes, you do. And now I, you guys, so so you guys go back farther than I thought. You like you're talking high school or no, or? no. Well, I met her like really early in in college, so we were college, pretty young. Okay. But yeah, 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 we we've been friends a long time, and I think the cool thing about the Electric Jesus podcast, this the music stuff we're doing, is that most of the people that we're going to hear from here on out are cool people you know that you introduce me to. But I thought. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of a power play on my part to be introducing you <laughs> I love it. to a super yes. cool person yes. as we get out of the um, gate and everything. Yes, yes. I'm excited so. to get to know her. Yeah, she's she's great. And yeah, she she has interesting. Um, I, I, I like, you know, I like anybody who's in, uh, a, a proponent of Gen X and the brilliance and the awesomeness of our generation. But but Christy really has uh, puts a lot of thoughtfulness into that. And. It's it's really makes an interesting case for how music became so important to us and our generation, and then of course that ends up feeding uh, those of us who are listening to Christian rock music in the '80s. Maybe it gives some of the um, uh, some an understanding of some of the power that had for us. Right, right. Now, as we're looking forward to the rest of this first season of the Electric Jesus podcast, and we're thinking about music as memory and the way music forms our memories and mixtapes and all that kind of nostalgia to an extent, but there's something more to it. It's good to have a conversation like this to kind of get us started. And then as we're looking forward, we've got artists we're talking to, we've got producers, we've got songwriters, we've got um, a lot in store for people. So it's going to be quite an adventure. I'm really excited for people to, for the mixtape to start rolling. Yeah, exactly. And we will make sure we, I think we've got a good, uh, we're not only listening to talking to artists, we're not only talking to uh, uh, musicians, we're we're trying to bring some fans and some smart, thoughtful people that uh, have opinions and ideas about the, the whole world that Electric Jesus is, is uh, the sandbox, as you like to say, that we're playing in. Thank you. 
That's going to do it for this episode of the Electric Jesus Podcast. For more information about the Electric Jesus Film, visit electricjesusfilm.com and make sure to sign up for the email list, also known as the G's Team. You should also check out the Electric Jesus YouTube channel and Facebook groups for great behind-the-scenes videos, updated information about the film, and more. All links are available on the show notes page. This podcast is produced by myself, John J. Thompson, and Bruce A. Brown for Gyroscope Productions and is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Everything on the Electric Jesus podcast is used by permission or under fair use provisions and with the exception of previously copywritten materials is the intellectual property of Blue Tape Records, LLC, and is protected by U.S. copyright law. Next time on the Electric Jesus podcast. So when it was time to write the music for Electric Jesus, both original songs and score. It would be a falsetto voiced indie rocker from South Jersey, Daniel Smith of the legendary alt folk band Danielson, who would bring the music to life.